welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. We need to make sure that palliative care and, I use the term made there, and made are quite distinct. Because palliative care, by the World Health Organization definition, says that we neither hasten or postpone natural death. Okay? So that's the idea behind it. And um, <clears throat> so I was out there with what I said, and then there were uh, two other Christians and another person who was, was very... Um, I'm not sure whether he's a Christian or not, but he's basically in our camp. So he said um, uh, they, there were just the four of us and there were four positions, so I actually got in by acclamation. <laughs> so I didn't have to show my hand quite as much. But it's very interesting that within that group of people there on the board, there were a number who originally were kind of on the fence about termination. And they have come to the place where they have said, it's just being used way too much. So one of them works with First Nations folks and is finding that there are, uh, because there's more depression and more mental illness and other things there, that there's, and, and fewer resources, that they're, they're disproportionately being um, uh, subjected to this. And another person works in one of Canada's cities in the inner city and is seeing the marginalized folks there opting. For this when they can't get the proper care. So it's very interesting that people who before were thinking, well, you know, we'll just let them have what they want are now much more um, wanting to say, look, you know, this has gone too far. But it's a little bit like <laughs> saying the runaway train has gone too far because, you know, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to stop it. But um, that having been said, there's this little urban myth or this little story, a little parable, of the little boy who's on the seashore. 
and there's been a huge tide and there's all these sea stars that are up on the shore and they're going to die. So he's going along and he's throwing them back into the ocean one at a time. And this person comes along and says, it's not going to make any difference, you know. He keeps throwing them in and he says, it's not going to matter. And then the boy says, well, it'll matter to this one. And he throws that one in. So I think we need to look around us and see who for us, who will it matter for? You know, whether or not we're able to make a big difference or not, you know, that's why I'm willing to drive an hour each way to come and talk to you folks tonight because who knows where, where you will go. And um, Jesus went to Samaria to talk to just one person and it had big results. So, and he healed that one guy and sent the stuff into the pigs. And when he came, came back later, there were all those people that wanted to hear about him. So you have an opportunity in your own sphere of influence to actually just ask some questions about, well, what about this and what about that? And, you know, some of those things about, well, what do you actually have to believe to think this is good? So you have a chance to, to do that. And it, it's going to get harder to fit in. So you really need to know your foundations. You really do. And that's why this new Antioch Institute is, I think, is just wonderful because it's helping you to get really grounded, know your foundations, and know your well actuallys, <laughs> so that you will you'll know um, what's going on. And and um, Dr. Patrick also talks about the democracy of the dead. You know that if you're saying, okay, well, every everybody believes such and such. Well, not if you count all the dead people. <laughs> For, for several millennia, they didn't believe that, you know, so there's, there, we're in a very small minority right now of people who think that it's okay to, to kill their fellow human beings, um, even at their request. Okay, so is, does anybody have any questions about anything that I've said, or you, you're, you, you don't understand something, or you're thinking, gosh, that, that doesn't sound right? Well, or, sort of. They're allowed to at a certain extent. So what they've done is if you've got pancreatic cancer and we know you're, there's a very slim chance you're going to be, you know, barring some kind of miracle, that you're going to be alive a year from now, um, then your death is reasonably foreseeable and, you know, you could, then you don't have any big issues with that. But let's say you have something like diabetes, okay? And you don't want to be treated by insulin. You don't want to have any shots. And so your death is pretty reasonably foreseeable with that, but it's not really a quote-unquote terminal condition. So you would have to wait 90 days, but you would, all you have to do is to get a doctor to say that, um, that you, um, that you, yeah, exactly. And you, you know what's going on. Um, and then there's all these little loopholes that if they think that you might lose capacity, okay, so that you might not be able to say, well, I want to have this, then what they've got now is this thing that if, so Gloria Taylor, she wasn't even going to lose capacity. But let's say now there was a, a woman in Nova Scotia who said, well, you know, I'd really like to live till Christmas and do there, but I'm afraid that if I get to Christmas, I may be considered that I, I don't have 
capacity to make this decision. Okay, so you're supposed to be of sound mind when you do this. So I might not have capacity to make the decision. So I have to go for made, she would put it, before I want to. And that doesn't seem fair because I might lose capacity. So now they've got a thing that if you would be approved for it and you can say, okay, I would like to have it on this date. And if you lose capacity, unless you fight them off, which a woman in the Netherlands did or Belgium, I can't remember which, but they still held her down and did it. Um, so uh, unless you do that, then you are, you can relax and know that the state will take your life at that point, even if you don't have capacity. Now, what they're really going for is for you to be able to say, well, if I ever get to place X, I don't want to be alive anymore. So that your healthy self is pronouncing a death sentence on your other self. So that if you are making your will out or your whatever and you say, okay, if I get to the place where I can't recognize my children's faces, I, I, want, I don't want to live like that. But we don't really know how we would want to live until we get there. They do. They do actually have that in their. Yep. Yeah. So it, the Netherlands has cards that people carry in their wallet that says, do not euthanize me. Okay. And there is a, um, the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition in Canada has some, you know, uh, power of attorney type things where no euthanasia, uh, no termination kind of things. The best thing, I will, I will quote Norm Kuntz, who's a disability rights activist, and he said, if you believe in euthanasia, you better be very, very nice to your children. <laughs> so it's um, what I think, yeah, well, at the moment it's illegal if you are, um, if, you're, if you don't have capacity or if you didn't get approved while you had capacity. So what they're fighting for is for you to be able to say for yourself, but, you know, it will be a short step from that to your caregiver or your power of attorney saying, oh, I'd really, you know, mom would, re yes, mom would really want, you know, she wouldn't want us to be spending all this money on, on having her in long-term care. She, she wouldn't want to live this way and, you know, Susie's going to medical school, or John wants to be a lawyer, and, you know, uh, it, greed is a bad thing, and it can be a, a real motivator. And we've already seen the government is quite happy that made us saving people money, uh, saving money, and, you know, I had when they were having the hearings about this, I was at a public meeting and one guy got up and said, look, this doesn't seem so hard to me. These people want to be dead. Let them die and just, you know, take, get themselves out of the medical system and we'll give the money to the people with the disabilities who need the money. You know, it's just like very utilitarian. So this idea that somehow that if people want to be dead, we'll just make them dead and, and there's going to be no consequences for that. That's the thing that People just get, go ahead. How do I respond to it? Well, and that, this is the hard part about this whole thing. 
because it's real easy to say things like my body, my choice, okay, versus um, the, the more nuanced things that we have to say from our standpoint. And I think that what we have to say is, uh, well, one of the ways, <laughs> it's, it's not easy. I think I would just say it's not as simple as that because one of the things that I do, and there's not enough people here to do it, but one of the things that I do, and I'm, I'm speaking at Willingdon Church, I'm going to do a similar format on Friday night, and I think they've got more than 200 people there. So what I do is I say, all right, let's just see how autonomous this is. So I get people to stand up. Nobody has to say anything. So one person stands up, and that's the patient. And then, okay, you can help me. Who else might be involved in a medical termination of a patient? Let's get a list. Doctor or nurse practitioner, who else? Family members, okay, there's three. Who else? Lawyers, who else? Think about it. the governments involved, yeah, legislators and regulators, who else? Yeah, probably the tax people are, but who else is involved even more closely? Pharmacies, who else? Who else? The doctor or the nurse practitioner does. But the hospital is, so let's say there's hospital staff, like nurses, care aides, um, social workers. So we've got 10 there, and maybe even we've got a ward clerk who knows what's going on, okay? There's 11, what else? Yep, funeral director. Who else? Where are we right now? So we've got the clergy, okay? Yep. Anybody else? You've got teachers. You know, there's, there's all these people. So you've got, pardon? You've got a university, you've got the law schools, you've got the medical schools, all of that stuff going on. So because those things have to be taught, right? And they have to be, the, the law has to be taught and the, the medicine for it has to be taught. So you've got 15 people standing up there and the, other than the patient, every one of those other individuals represents a whole group of people. It's not just the doctor, but the doctor's team. It's not just the nurses, but all the nurses, the social workers, the family, the friends. The, it's not just one funeral director, it's everybody on his team. It's not just that pharmacist, it's everybody in that pharmacy. So how autonomous does that look to you when one person has this entire team of people? Now, if you go out behind the barn and shoot yourself, we're all going to be sad. But unless I hand you the gun and say, just go get it over with, I'm not really complicit in that. I may feel responsible, most people do with a suicide, or if you take too many pills or you stockpile that or whatever, um, or you throw yourself in front of a transit thing, you know, we all feel like, well, I should have known, what could I have done? But you're not nearly as complicit as the guy who mixes the drugs or does the injection or any of those kinds of things. So how autonomous is it really? I think that's the question. Okay, your body, your choice, fine. But um, this is not an autonomous thing. 
You are not just doing your thing. You are doing your thing on my turf. You are, you are helping to decide how my lovely grandbabies are going to die. You are helping to decide what kind of a, what kind of a society we're going to have. Are we going to have a society where we care for one another even when it's hard? Or are we going to have a kind of society that says, when somebody says, I wish I were dead, we'll say, oh, we, we, can, we can manage that. Rather than, why? How can we help you? Can we come alongside you? You mean something to us. So that man who said he didn't have joy anymore, and that's why he wanted to be dead, he, he robbed our society of something really important. Because he didn't allow himself to be cared for. He was a prominent businessman, and he didn't allow himself to be cared for. So his family lost out on the opportunity of saying, you know, dad was always a real hard-nosed business guy, and he did all this for us. But man, at the end, I was able to help him in the bathroom or feed him or read to him or care for him, even when he couldn't do anything back for me. And he lost the sense that even when I couldn't do anything for my family, they still loved me. And we all lost that that's the way that we care for each other in, in Canadian society. I mean, we, we love to say we're altruistic. We're willing to stand in line and, you know, wait 10 months to get a GI consult because there's other people that may be ahead of you. And, you know, all of these kinds of things. And we want to welcome, we want to welcome um, uh, foreigners and people who are refugees. We want to have good sidewalks so that we can take care of people with disabilities. But, you know, we're schizophrenic about this. We're saying, okay, but you know, if you want to be dead, okay. <laughs> it's, it's not just you. I think that's the thing. If, if somebody said, well, my body, my choice, why can't I drive uh, 300 miles, 300 kilometers an hour down the number one? Well, yeah, it is your body and your choice at that point, but you are coming in contact or potentially coming in contact with things that are going to be negative for the rest of us. And interestingly in medicine, the onus is on the person who's making the change to show that it's not going to be detrimental before the change is to be accepted. So if you're bringing in a new medication, you're the one that's supposed to be proving that it's not going to be harmful. It's not like, oh, we'll just put this out there and see if it's bad. <laughs> but they didn't have to prove that. In fact, the, the justice who brought down the first decision in British Columbia said, oh, yeah, well, it's just another medical procedure. We know that that's what she said. We know that people will die and that they, there will be some unintended deaths from this. But, you know, we don't stop people having hip replacements because a few people die when they have a hip replacement. Now, the Irish High Court looked at the data from around the world and came to the opposite conclusion that our, our justice in British Columbia came to. And, you know, it was, it's very... It's very skewed, okay? And there's, there's a lot of spiritual warfare in this. So the justice here in British Columbia who heard the original case, and what I didn't understand before this is that if you are going to appeal something, you can't really appeal it on that she just was wrong. You have to appeal it on how the law works. And so it can go right to the Supreme Court they, she, they lost the other, you know, we won at the appeals court, but we lost at the Supreme Court um, with uh, 
a unanimous decision, which was really sad. But the what she the justice that that heard the case here, because it wasn't it was just with the justice, not a jury, she campaigned to have this case. And she was involved, and, and Beverly McLaughlin, who is our Supreme Court, uh, uh, head justice of the Supreme Court at the time, she had been a dissenter on the Sue Rodriguez case before. So she had an ax to grind as well to, to get this sorted out. And it, it, was, it was so skewed that um, there's, a, there's a really interesting uh, gentleman in Powell River, of all places, who has an international website called the Protection of Conscience Project. And he doesn't take, uh, his name's Sean Murphy, he doesn't take sides on the issues, but he has some really great stuff about conscience. And he has some very good things for students, like how if you are speaking up in your own things about how, what you can do, how you take notes. He's been a coroner before. He's a retired RCMP guy. He's just amazing. So it's called the Protection of, Protection of Conscience Project. And his, his name is Sean Murphy. He's, he's excellent. So, um, but he called me after that. He read all 400 pages of the, <laughs> of the Carter decision. And he called me and he said, we didn't bring our best game to this. And I said, no, we, we didn't. But, um, you know, I wasn't allowed to testify because I was religious. Okay. And the government knew that it would be, all it would happen would be that I would get attacked and that would undermine what they were doing. I went down and spent a lot of time talking to the, the, the lawyers who were for the government, but I'd, I was a detriment to them because, I, because you could Google me and find out that I was, I was a Christian. So she said, 30 years ago, you know, this was, this was 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago now. 30 years ago, that would have been an asset. It's not anymore. And I said, well, I don't want to do anything that's going to damage the case. That's for sure. But, I mean, that's kind of where, where things are with that. But she did things like, she, she labeled a woman named Margaret Batten, who is, I think she did her PhD on John Donne. And she's done some little mini um, social science supposed studies where it's like very small numbers of people and you know nothing that is really rigorous okay and and the justice who heard the case labeled her as an unbiased expert and a man named Herbert Hendon who is uh, a full professor of psychiatry at one of the universities in New York City a doctor and the head of the international, at the time, was the head of the International Suicide Prevention Organization was considered by the justice to be a biased witness. So the way that she's presenting all of these things and how it comes out is just, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing. And, and the whole thing with conscience protection has really gone down the tubes too. And the people who have brought this in are now pushing it into everything. There's a um, I was telling you about the thing on the Dying with Dignity website about asking the doctors not to do it. In, in, uh, in Ontario, and I think maybe Nova Scotia, doctors are required to make what's called an effective referral if somebody asks them to 
to have a, a medical termination. So we, in Canada, we don't do effective referrals for, um, with, with capital punishment. If somebody is c accused of a capital crime in the state of Texas, we don't extradite because we know that unless we have a guarantee that they won't face the death penalty because we know we'd be complicit. But the, the, the Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons says, oh, that's not being complicit. Yes, it is, it is stepping on your religious rights, but tough, tough. You know, the patient, patient access comes first. And now they have upped the ante. They're pushing toward, I'm not sure whether they've passed it yet or not, but what they want is for, uh, there's two things that they want now. One thing they want is for the fact that if you ask for that effective referral, that you as the physician have to follow up and make sure they got connected. I don't have to do that if I send somebody to an orthopedic surgeon or a dermatologist, but this time you would. Now, my, my husband, the, 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 the ophthalmologist, who's a little bit snarky sometimes, says you're supposed to call them up and say, are you dead yet? You know, but that's kind of what it is, really. And, and then the next thing they're, they're, they're pushing for, we know already how broad all of this is. They're pushing to make it mandatory to the fact that you could lose your license if you don't do this, that you are to introduce made medical termination as a treatment option for anyone who might qualify. So you go to the oncologist, you get the you get this, you get you get your um, your diagnosis, and oh by the way, this is one of the things that you do. That's it, it's one of your treatment options. We can kill you. So, uh, and as my friend Tom Koch says, you know, this, the other thing about this idea of autonomy is that how, how do you define autonomy? Okay, so if somebody says, my body, my choice, well, okay, but what if that body doesn't have enough money to live? What if that body has no, no social support network? What if that body has a disability? What if that body can't speak for himself? You know, what... How, how is that autonomous if the person is asking not because he, he or she can't, um, wants to be dead, but because they don't want to live like they're living, you know? So what is that saying about us as a society if we think that some of these things are, are um, acceptable, maybe not reasonable, but acceptable reasons that people would want this? You know, it's... It's, it's a bit chilly. Um, there's, in Canada, we have, we're, we're coming close to having the most liberal, liberal policy of this. I put liberal in quotes, most open policy of this in all the world. And um, it's, it's, really, it, it's really sad, you know, what we're, we're thinking of doing with the, with the mental health ones and all of those things. And you can get continuing medical education credit at the University of BC if you, there's a, um, a little course you can take called Normalizing Made for Children. And the woman who teaches this little class, it's online, and she says, if the adults normalize it, it'll be normalized for the children. And she talks about how when she goes in to do one of these medical terminations, she sets out all her things and she invites the children to come. And she says, these are the things 
I'm going to use to help your loved one die. You can ask me any questions you want. And then after the person's dead, she says she refuses to call the person by name. So it's not mommy, it's not grandma, it's not Uncle John. It's just the body now because the person's not there. So she makes that decision, not the family or anything else. So how is this, how is this civilized, you know, that we're normalizing this? And then, um, so there's, there's all of that. There's the, the prayers through the United Church. There's, there's books out there about, you know, grandma's last week and, you know, things like this that are romanticizing all of this and making it seem like it, oh, it's just the most beautiful thing in the world. And um, we need, as Christians, to have our own stories to tell about this. I did my little presentation on dignity conserving care as the keynote for the Catholic Women's League national meeting by Zoom last year. And one of the ladies, the questions was, somebody in my parish asked me to come while she was having made, and I want to know whether I need to be there whether I should be there or not. And I said, well, you know, everybody's got to make your own decision about stuff like that. But what I would say is we need to get upstream of that a long way. Like every parish priest needs to be saying, this is a bad idea, that your life is a gift from God and that you don't mess with it. <laughs> you know, that there's a reason why he says all the days that are for you are written in his book before one of them comes to be. And if, if you are messing with his timing, then you are off base. You're, you know, and I, I don't believe in all the horrible old stuff about, you know, burying the suicide at the crossroads and, you know, doing those. Uh, one of our friends lost a child to suicide, and I said, how are you handling this? And she said, well, I realized that my son had a terminal illness, and he died of his disease because he had terrible depression when he took his own life. I thought that was a really good way of looking at it. So I do understand that. But if you're if you're doing things where, you know, you've got someone who just has a few days to live and well-controlled symptoms, family around, and you say, oh, well, we'll just shorten it. You know, what, what's wrong with us? You know, why, why do we think this is a good idea? I think that's the question, you know, and, and that's kind of the answer that I, I, I give to people as well. What kind of world do you want to live in? That's the answer to those things. Is you want to live in a world where if, if you have a disability or you have a, an issue, uh, if you have an illness, if you're feeling undignified, that people come alongside and say, we love you, you know? Or do you want to live in a world where, um, where we, we, uh, we say, okay, you want to be dead, we'll make you dead. So, okay, Antioch students, where, where does this verse come from? And now I will show you the most excellent way. This is a trick question. You're not going to fail if you don't know. We'll open it up to the rest. Does anybody know where it comes from? Yes, gold star. So it's the last verse. Yes, it's the last verse of 1 Corinthians. While you were listening, praise God. So it's the last verse, uh, the last part of 1 Corinthians 12 right before the love chapter, okay? All right, and so what's the most excellent way? The most excellent way is not the way of rights. The most excellent way is the way of love. So you've got your Bible open there. Let's go to Philippians uh, chapter two. Go to Philippians chapter two for me. You got it? Okay, 
So start reading at the beginning. Okay, that's, that's as far as we need to go. Okay, so that is love. And what we need to realize as Christians, that rights are an admission that love has failed. Rights are an admission that love has failed. If all of us did that, where we counted others better than ourselves, we wouldn't need to have rights. Got one, I'll just finish this thing for you. But Winston Churchill once said that democracy was the worst form of government, except for all the others. And rights are a bit like that. You know, we need to have them because we're not all going to be like that. I'm not like that all the time. And, you know, that line between good and evil runs through our hearts. But you know what? I think as Christians, we need to be grateful for rights, but maybe not celebrate them quite as much. To realize that we need rights because love has failed. Okay. So what kind of a society do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a society that says, this is my right? Or do we want to have a society that says, man, I'm so sorry that you're feeling like that. How can we help you? How can we love you? And you know what? It's, it's harder to do that. It's real easy to say, oh, you want to be dead? Fine. You know, I don't have no skin off my nose. Saves me money on my taxes. Um, I don't have to make a casserole. I don't have to sit by you. I don't, have to, I don't have to change a dressing that smells bad, maybe, or, or uh, help you with, your, with the diaper if you're incontinent now. I'm happy. I can just go out and play pickleball and just leave you on your own. You know, it costs something. But you know what? To me, it's the difference of the gold refined by fire and the little plastic gold-colored trinket you get in the Cracker Jack box. Maybe you don't even know what Cracker Jacks are. Do you have Cracker Jacks? You know what the Cracker Jacks are? Oh, Lord. I am old. <laughs> Do you know what Cracker Jacks are? Oh, yeah. So there, there's this box, of, and they had kind of a candy, um, like, what do they call it now? Yeah, it's like a caramel popcorn and some peanuts in there, too. And there was always a little treat, a little trinket in there when you're growing up. Look it up. You'll see the, the little box, the Cracker Jacks. And it's even in that Take Me Out to the Ball Game song. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if it's anywhere. Anyway, my granddaughter sings that song, so you've you got to know a little bit. But anyway, that um, any kind of a little trinket that you get like that, just a little plastic trinket painted gold, that's what the world is offering with autonomy. What we have is gold refined by fire. And, you know, it's worth it because God is no person's debtor. He says, whatever you do, he's going to pour it back into your lap. And it may not be the way you expect. It may not be the way you expect. But it's still going to be there. Did you have a question? Or? I clarified it. Okay. In Ontario and, and Nova Scotia. Well, there's, all right. So here's a, little, here's a little thing. I am very opposed to doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners calling themselves providers. I never call myself a provider. You've probably heard this, your healthcare provider. It's supposed to be really egalitarian, but you can say clinician, you can say professional, you can say physician, um, any of those things, but provider is a vending machine, okay? A provider is a vending machine, and it, it 
reinforces that idea that our, in our medical culture that the patient is the one who's coming to you to get what he or she wants. So we used to have, back in the 50s and 60s, we, we were, everybody was decrying paternalism, where a, a trained professional was telling an untrained patient what to do. Well, now we have autonomy, where the untrained patient is telling the trained professional what to do. And what I really want to see is a more of a covenant relationship. It's not a commercial relationship. It's, it's a covenant relationship, or it's a collaborative relationship, where I bring my expertise and my opinions and all of who I am to the table, and you bring your stuff, and then you decide whether you want to follow my advice or not. But you don't come to me and demand that I make sure you're dead or demand that I make sure your baby's gone or whatever. You know, those are providers. So the only people I call providers are abortion providers and maid providers. And they call them that themselves. So you have to, um, the whole thing is really, there, there was a group of people that were the maid evangelists in the epicenter of that was with Stephanie Green on Vancouver Island. And so they founded their own little group right off the bat, as soon as it became legal, actually it was in the works before it became legal, called the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers. Okay? So they, um, and they just made themselves up. And they decided, the government has decided that they're doing, that, 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 their guidelines are going to be what are used and all of this stuff. So there's a, there's a really good article in the New Atlantis by, um, recently by a, a man who did an expose, basically, from the U.S. on what's going on with, with Made in Canada about the options and everything. Did I send you that little piece, of, that list of things? Okay, the, it's in there. It's in there. So um, it's, it's kind of chilling, the stuff that they do, but they... You, you can become a maid provider, and, and at least in British Columbia, you don't have to lie on the death certificate. Like in, in Oregon, you have to lie on the death certificate. You have to say that the person died of whatever the underlying cause was. You're not allowed to say the person did that. So at least in BC, you say that, but you have to put the underlying cause. It can't just be, it can't just be made. But there's, there's, those, things are, those things are all there. So yeah, that's, that's who's, so there's, there's a whole group of people who are. And it's, it's easier in British Columbia to get approved for MAID than it is to get approved for home oxygen. It's just a little checklist. That the, and it takes less time than it does to, to you know, have the oxygen saturations checked and get up and walk and do all that stuff. It's easier to get assessed for that. So, you know, that part's, it's sad but true. That's really what what's what's going on. I have one last thing to show you. And does it connect to the how do we do this? So there's some something you can look at is our little campaign called No Options, No Choice. Okay? And we we had some money that was left to us at the Canadian Medical uh, Canadian the Christian Medical and Dental Association of Canada. And along with the Canadian Hospice and Palliative Care Association, we got this um, little campaign going called No Options, No Choice. And I got, I got interviewed for it 
and then another project too. And I was sitting in my living room for about five hours, and I think I'm in one of them for about 15 seconds. So, but anyway, it's probably better for you. But just look, no options, no choice. Ca, and it's meant to be, um, it's meant to be something that's for the general public, and it connects to your member of parliament and your MLA and all of those kinds of things so that you can make your, uh, you can make your voice heard. And the interesting thing, when I went to see Joyce Murray, who's my member of parliament, she said I was the only person in the whole, her whole writing who had come in opposed to it. Everybody else in the, the west side of Vancouver, which is white, wealthy, worried, and well, you know, <laughs> Um, not really, but um, everybody else was saying, oh, I hope they'll have it by advanced directive and, you know, all this control stuff. So it does make a difference. And if you actually, if you send an email, it counts for a certain number of votes. If you pick up the telephone, it counts for a few more votes. But if you send a written letter, it counts for like 400 votes. You know, it's, that's how they, they, they actually count these things in, uh, in, in your MP's office. So Never underestimate what you can do. And they give you some templates on here. But I wanted you to hear Tracy's story here. I, I think I just turn up my volume, hey, and then go, go for it. All right, let's try. It's only six minutes, so don't panic. So there's, there's a, a couple other uh, folks who are also uh, there's a, a young man who had a who had a struggle with mental illness who tells his story, and a woman who had cancer who tells her story as well. Um, and then there's other other things there, so you can you can have a look at that. So we've gone a couple minutes over, but um, do you have any questions, or can you think of something where I call it the yeah buts? So. When you're talking to your friends, they're going to say, yeah, but what about this? Or what about that? Um, can you think of something that is making you think about that right now? Um, I haven't talked about the other side of this, about what can we do to help. And I think that is a lot, a lot of that goes about, well, how do we have dignity conserving care and what can we do? And, you know, maybe, maybe we could do that one by Zoom or something. Because um, I've got a, I have a good PowerPoint for that one, and I've done that presentation quite a few times. So that's something that we could, we could talk about if you're wanting to do it. But I, I do think it's very important to have an understanding about how, how far down this rabbit hole we've really gone. And there are people who are writing. Anthony Fury, who was in favor of this, he's a journalist. He said we've, we've actually. It's not a slippery slope. We've, we're hurtling into the abyss here in Canada about what we're doing. So we need to at least be able to say to our friends, you know, I, I don't want, I don't want, I don't actually believe that this is a good for us. And it's not going to be good for, I don't want to live in that kind of world where rights are more important than love. That's uh, one of the ways. So, um, yeah, there's Longfellow wrote a poem about, people who did things later in life. He wrote it for an anniversary uh, of one of his, his university class. But the last stanza of that poem is, it's talking about being older. 
and how things are getting darker. But I think really in our society, things are, are getting darker too, in terms of we're going to have to be willing to stand out more. And, uh, you know, St. Paul talked about us shining like lights in the universe in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But Longfellow's poem, the last little bit goes, for age is opportunity no less than youth itself, though in another dress. For as the evening twilight fades away, the sky is filled with stars, invisible by day. So as this evening twilight fades away, I'm hoping for these little stars here to start shining in to show us. So have you got a, another question? Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lecture Series on MADE and the Christian Worldview. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures, or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. And we're also on Facebook, and you can find us there by searching for New Antioch Institute or through the link provided in the show notes. Thanks again. Take care.